Okay, so we're in Psalm 130, and we're looking at those first four verses of that psalm. The outline in front of you should help you. Uh, It says, when we have sinned. Now, there is a story in the Bible of King Esther. King Esther was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and he is the great-grandson of King Solomon. Esther's dad is King Abijah, and his granddad was King Rehoboam. And these two guys were very evil kings. So when King Asa became king, uh, king of Judah, it was truly a breath of fresh air. Esther cleansed the palace of sin. In fact, he was so zealous for God that he deposed his grandmother, who at that time was acting as queen mother. And Esther destroyed all the pagan temples throughout Judah. And he commanded the people of God to worship the one true God. When Zerah the Ethiopian threatened Judah with a vast army, King Esther immediately, immediately ran to God for help. And the Lord intervened powerfully and saved Judah. And from that moment, the land of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, enjoyed tremendous peace for three decades. But in the 35th year of Asa's kingship, the northern kingdom of Israel, led by King Bashar, threatened to invade the peaceful kingdom of Judah. And to our surprise, three decades on, instead of Esther running to God like he had done before, he decided to beg the pagan king, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, for help. He ran to Ben-Hadad. And Esther, who had before trusted in God, now trusted in man for help. So, of course, God was not pleased with this. God sent the prophet Enani to command King Esau to repent. But to, to our shock, even more shock, King Esau was very angry with this man. He cancelled Enan. He cancelled him and he, by throwing him in jail, literally. He locked up the prophet who warned him to repent. Of course, one sin leads to another, doesn't it? Soon, King Esau started oppressing his own people. And the Bible records that the kingdom of Judah found itself at war because of King Esau's action. In the 39th year of King Esau's reign, uh, he had a terrible disease, a foot disease. But instead of King Esau repenting of sin and seeking help from God, no, he followed what would say today, he followed the science. Uh, he turned to the doctors of Judah instead of the living God. But the doctors of Judah couldn't help him. You see, the only cure for Esther's problem was true repentance. But he didn't want to repent. So two years later, the Bible tells us that Esther died a very unhappy man. That was the end of him. And you, you can read about this sad story of King Esther in Second Chronicles um, chapter 14 to chapter 16. There's also a record of his reign in First Kings. The story of Esther reminds us that it is hard to repent. Putting God first generates resistance within us. We don't want to surrender our lives to him. And when I say we, I'm not talking about the unbelievers in this context. 
I'm talking about those of us who profess to be followers of Jesus. The people of God. People like King Esa, who had lived a godly life, found it difficult to truly repent when God commanded him to repent of a particular sin. But as we see in the life of Esther, when we, the people of God, take sin lightly, it can have terrible consequences for our relationship with God. Unrepentant sin separates, um, unrepentant sin, rather, cannot separate you from Jesus. Nothing can do that. But without ongoing repentance, you cannot live a truly happy life in Christ. And repentant sin in the life of a believer pollutes your intimacy with the Lord Jesus, who willingly and gladly bought you at such a high cost with his precious blood. And as we've been going through the Psalm of Ascents, we've seen as we learned in Psalm 128 in particular, if we want to grow in practical experience of the happiness, of true happiness, true fulfillment in God, we already have that through the blood of Christ. But if we want to grow through it, we want to grow to experience more of that fulfillment in practice, we need to grow in daily surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a key part of that is growing to truly repent when we commit sin. So you see, it is important therefore for us as followers of Jesus to know what true repentance looks like. And not only to know it intellectually, but to practice it every day as followers of Jesus. And to help us do this, uh, as I said, please look with me there at Psalm 130. Uh, this psalm is one of the seven penitential psalms. That is to say, the person in this psalm had sinned against God. So this psalm, a bit like Psalm 51, teaches us how to respond, us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus, us who are God's people, how to respond when we have sin in our lives. Or just how to respond, we have sin in our lives all the time, but just how to respond to sin in our lives, period. This psalm is in two parts. Verse 1 to 4 teaches us what true repentance for a child of God looks like. Verse 5 to 8 teaches us what we should do after we repent. Today we are focusing on verse 1 to 4. And of course in two weeks time we'll look at verse 5 to verse 8. Um, and when we look at verse 1 to 4 we see there are, four true, there are three truths here. Uh, that I think it teaches us about true repentance, true turning to God when we have sinned against him. The first truth it teaches us is that true repentance of our sin is troubled by sin. The truly repentant heart is troubled by sin, it's grieved by sin. Notice that this psalm starts with a confession of despair. In verse 1. Look at verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The picture there actually is a picture of a man who is drowning. And we find the same image in Psalm 69, verse 1 to 2. 
In Psalm 69, it says this, Serve me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm in the depths. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. <clears throat> it's a bit like uh, Jonah there, isn't it, in Psalm 69. Drowning is a fight for life. You are struggling to keep your head above water. When you're drowning, you are helplessly taking in death with every drink of water. And the psalmist here feels like he's spiritually drowning. He's filled with terror as he cries out to God for rescue. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And immediately we ask ourselves, what is troubling this man? Well, the answer is that he's drowning at the burden of his sin or his iniquity. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The original word for iniquity there is erwon. Iniquity is more than the, <coughs> the actions themselves. Iniquity describes our inner twisted and vile rebellion against God. It is that inner deviant nature. The psalmist is saying, my life is twisted in sin. I'm wrapped up in sin itself. And as he thinks about his sin, is it bothers him. We have to ask ourselves, why is he bothered that he has such sin in him? Well, the answer from verse 3 is that he's bothered because God is holy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? He thinks of who God is. He thinks of the righteousness of God and the fact that God has a holy and perfect standard. And he already feels condemned by God. You know, if you own a, a, a standard definition TV, uh, it looks pretty clear, doesn't it? Right? If you own a standard definition TV. But when you watch an HD TV, uh, you realize that you're not seeing people's faces uh, properly before. You weren't seeing people's faces properly before. So you had an SD TV. You looked okay, then you transition to an HDTV, you realize, oh, I can see a bit of a spot there on somebody's face, right? And then, if you have enough money, right, and you buy an ultra-definition TV, right, that is even sharper, right? It contains four times the amount of information you get in high definition. I think what we're saying is that the psalmist is saying, look, when I look at my sins, and I, I look at them through standard definition, right? But when God looks at my sin, he looks at my sins through 4K eyes. He, he looks at them through ultra-definition eyes. And when the psalmist thinks about that, it troubles him. It troubles him because he realizes that God can see all his ugliness. And that is reminding us that true repentance starts with this awareness, doesn't it? 
It starts with an awareness that I'm standing before a holy God. And there is none like him. And, and my sin, my sin has made me unclean. It starts with knowing our sin is an attack on the holiness and majesty of God. And the, on the righteousness of God. A true repentance senses that God is deeply offended by my sin. It recognizes that just as the betrayal of those closest to us breaks our hearts, God is especially offended by my sin as a child of God in Jesus. You see, there are some people who think that because God has declared me perfect through the Lord Jesus Christ, He has justified me, God doesn't care about my sin anymore. Some people think like that. But that is a lie from Satan. Because you are now a child of God, God is now more grieved by your current sins than before you became a Christian. You see, before you only sinned against his law, right? You were like a person who murdered a stranger. A terrible crime before God, but there was no personal betrayal involved. But now, as a child of God, you are like a person who's trying to murder his own father who loves her. Who sent his son to literally die for you. So, so your sin offends God more now because of the privileges, the position and the knowledge God has given you. You are beloved, beloved, you are no longer an ignorant sinner. You now sin against God with full knowledge. Your sin, unlike the sins of your unbelieving friends, is more heinous to God because it is pulling a trigger straight at your father's loving heart. And as I thought about this truth, I realized that just understanding this truth should fill us with humility when we speak to non-believers. Beloved, there is a sense in which we are greater sinners than them. It's quite a thought, isn't it? You and I, beloved, cannot truly repent daily of sins until we realize this truth. Until it grips us and fills us with humility before God. Until it strips us of all our pride. I believe the reason why many of us live unfruitful lives in Christ is that many of us do not know what it means to be like the psalmist in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We do not know the depths that the psalmist is talking about many of us in our own lives. Beloved, be honest this morning. 
When was the last time you thought of your sins and it drove you to tears? When was the last time you thought of your sins and you cried out, Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord? Not just your sins. When was the last time you considered the corporate sins of this church? Our lack of drive for evangelism. Our corporate prayerlessness. Our lack of sacrificial giving. Our lateness for church. Our lack of eagerness even to gather often together. When did you think of such sins? And it made you cry out to God. Out of the depths we cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear our voices. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of our pleas as great Baptist church. To you for mercy. Such prayers, beloved, are prayers from hearts that sees the holiness and righteousness of God. It is from hearts that can say with Jacob at Bethel, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And the Bible goes on to add in Genesis, And Jacob was afraid. He was afraid as he sensed the holiness and the might of God at Bethel. If we are honest, beloved, we don't have such deep, overwhelming sense of God in our lives. And because we don't have an overwhelming sense of God, we don't feel the horror of our sin before our holy and righteous God. We have a small view of sin because we have a small view of God. Small God, small sin. And there's a problem with that. The problem with that is that if we have a small view of God, and a sm- which leads to a small view of sin, it means our daily repentance is no repentance at all. It is simply a tick in the box. You know when you get up in the morning, you, 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 I hope you do this, you bow immediately before God by your bedside, and you say, Lord, you know, forgive me for the sins of the night, as it were. Right? Unconscious sins or whatever it is, right? When you do that, if it is not gripped by the true sense of your sinfulness, well, it's just a tick box exercise. It is not a deep work of the Spirit on our hearts. And the problem with that is that where there is no true repentance, we cannot grow in Christ. So if this psalm does anything, it should bring us, beloved, forget those who are outside. Think of yourself here. Think of your lack of true repentance. And that lack of true repentance is stifling your growth in Christ. Why are so many Christians so unhappy and so, so anxious about life? Where well, it comes back to here. Why are we so discontented? Why are we so frightened? Why do we like the drive to share the gospel? It all comes down to this. We lack true repentance. But our God is gracious, isn't it? And I think he has brought us to Psalm 130 today to help us repent of our lack of true repentance. And he's saying to you this morning, 
This is the true repentance I want from you. I want you to be broken for your sin. I want you to open the door of your sin and see how ugly it is. I want you to look at your constant worrying, your impatience, your anger, your unforgiveness, your critical spirit, your lies, your gossip, your slander, your controlling spirit, your jealousy, your envy, your selfishness, your glutton, your lust, your worldliness, your lack of self-control, your lack of true repentance. I want you to be troubled by that. Because true repentance, you see, starts with being troubled by our pet sins. And crying out to God, out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now we cannot manufacture that. We cannot create verse 1. This is godly sorrow. And it is godly sorrow because it is God who produces it in us. So I think the first action today is that you should ask God, if you are missing this, you should ask God to give you a true repentant heart. It's not good even repenting of sins if you're not doing it seriously. Go before God now and ask him to give you first a true repentant heart. A heart that is truly troubled by your sin. True repentance is troubled by sin. That's the first truth we learn here. The second truth we learn here is that true repentance leans on God's mercy. It leans on God's mercy. The depth of sorrow this person has for sin has produced within him a deep yearning to be forgiven of sin by God. And so we see in verse 2 him crying out, isn't it? Oh Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist is saying, look, the answer to my sin is not in digging myself out. The answer to my sin is not looking to other people for help. What I need is God to deal with me. What I need is God to forgive me by, of my sin by his mercy. And beloved, this is what separates true repentance from false repentance. False repentance is focused on us. It is focused on making our lives better. It is about us trying to be happy. We look at our sin and we feel sorry that if, we, if God doesn't deal with our sin, He's not going to answer my prayer for a job. He's not going to answer my prayer for a spouse. He's not going to just do things for me. It is about us. It is about us being happy again. Beloved, God will not answer such prayers for repentance that are self-focused. Because that is an attempt to bribe God. True repentance is God-focused. It seeks spiritual renewal with God. The person knows they have blasphemed God, right? And they want God to be honored by repentance. During the 18th century in the U.S., 
God used a man called Jonathan Edwards in what is known as the First Great Awakening, a great time of spiritual revival. On one occasion, Jonathan Edwards was holding a prayer meeting, and around 800 men, just men, only men, gathered together to pray with him. 800 of them. And while they were praying, a woman outside sent a message asking the men in the prayer meeting to pray for her husband without mentioning his name. And the note that she sent to Jonathan Edwards simply said, Please pray for my husband. He's full of spiritual pride. He has become very difficult at home. He's very unloving. I want him to repent and change. So Edwards got this note, right? And as he's standing up where I'm standing, he read it privately. And then he thought to himself, maybe this man is in the meeting, right? So Edwards read the note, said, I'm going to read it to the 800 men, right? The men in front of me, right? So Edwards then read the note to the men. Then he asked the man who was described on the note to raise his hand so that everyone could pray for him in that meeting. But to Edward's shock, around 300 men raised their hands. Each had been convicted by God of their sin of not loving their wives, of spiritual pride. And they wanted to publicly confess it before God. As I think about those 300 men, I I realize that's what true repentance is like, isn't it? It does not ignore sin. It does not shift blame on others. It does not find ways to hide it. It does not even run away from God or from sources where that sin could be dealt with. No, it sees the ugliness of our sin and then immediately runs to the mercy seat. It immediately runs to God with all the, as it were, Biblical help available. It runs to God and cries out. Out of the depths I cry, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. But look at verse 2 again. Have you noticed something in verse 2? Did you you notice that there are two names for God in verse 2? Particularly in verse verse 1 and 2. One is Lord in capital letters in verse 1. That is the name of the one true God, Yahweh. The other one is Lord in small letters. That's in verse 2. And that is Adonai. It means Master or Lord. So we can read uh, verse 1 to 2 like this. Out of the depths I cry, to you, O Yahweh. O Master, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. And when you read that, you immediately realize what the psalmist is saying is, I need mercy because you are my master. You are my Adonai. In fact, we have a similar rendering in verse 4 of Lord Adonai and Yahweh, right? He said, I need Mercy because you are my master. I am your servant. I am throwing myself at your feet. I have nowhere else to turn. 
And so what we have in verse 1 and 2 is, is a helpless cry, but not a hopeless cry. It's a helpless cry, but not a hopeless cry. The psalmist is confident that as deep as his sin is, the love and mercy of God is deeper still. Because we read that in verse 3 to 4, don't we? If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. He's saying, I know if you kept my record of my, the record of my sins, I have no chance. But you are not going to keep the record of my sin because you are my forgiving God. I am coming to you to forgive me, not because I am trusting in my tears, not because I'm trusting in my repentance, but because I'm trusting in your endless mercy for me as your servant. But with you there is forgiveness. Do you see that? True repentance leans on the mercy of God alone. It comes completely empty before God. It does not even depend on the act of repentance. That's the Catholics, right? We think that what they do can end them repentance. But no, no, it doesn't depend on the act of repentance, biblical repentance. The quality of our repentance can't compel God to forgive us. We cannot bribe God. If we rely on anything we do for God, even our repentance, it is bribing God. We must lean only on his mercy. So of course that raises the question, isn't it? But should I just spend time telling us that true repentance is troubled by sin? So if it makes no difference, so to speak, why, why, if we cannot buy God with our trouble, with, by, by, with our grief, what's the point? Why do we need to be troubled by sin and repentance then? Well, because those whom God desires to forgive, he first fills them with godly sorrows. God's mercy causes godly sorrow, not the other way around. It is good for us to be troubled by our sin. Because it shows when you are when you're weighed down by your sin and you're grieved by it, it shows that God's the Spirit of God is a word ready to lift up that burden, isn't it? Like in Pilgrim's Progress. You know, the burden is there for a purpose so that you can cry out to God because it is the mechanism God uses. You know that God is working in and through that burden by His mercy to draw you to Himself. So, God's mercy causes godly sorrows. And when we cry out to God out of that burden of our sin, we can be confident he will forgive us because his word tells us he is merciful. So there is no true repentance without godly sorrow, right? And the godly sorrow we have is as a result of the mercy of God. And God is merciful because his word tells us in Lamentations 3 verse 22, doesn't it? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And Jeremiah adds, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him, not in me. So God is merciful. 
But it's better than that. The Bible says God is especially merciful to us who are in Christ. He's merciful in a special way to his precious children in Christ. Because First Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 tells us this. First Peter 1, 3 to 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Why has God given you new life in Jesus if you're trusting in Jesus this morning? Because of his great mercy. What makes his mercy so great? Because the great son died for your sin. And as Peter reminds us, the great son didn't just die. The Lord Jesus not only died, he rose from the dead in order that we may be born again to a living is in Jesus we have the free and glorious mercy of God. The mercy of God in Jesus keeps us from the wrath and judgment of God. That's what Peter is saying. It keeps us from the danger of hell. It is his great mercy that renews and strengthens and keeps us going in Christ. It is his great mercy that keeps us from being swallowed by many dangers, toils, and snares. It is His great mercy that provides for all our material, spiritual, and emotional needs. And it's this same great mercy that forgives our sins daily when we truly repent. We do not need to hold on to our sins. We do not need to be hide them away. We can bring our sins before God because... There is more great mercy in the blood of Christ than there is sin in us. So today, I don't know what sin you've got in your life at the moment. But resolve to honestly face it. And truly repent of it before Jesus, our merciful Savior. True repentance is troubled by sin. That's the first point. And secondly, true repentance leans on the mercy of God. So resolve to true repent of your sin by leaning on God's mercy. Here's a final point. True repentance leads to a break from sin. True repentance does not leave us as we are. When God forgives our sin, it results in a renewed love for God that breaks us from sin. Look at this for. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. God forgives our sins so that we may we can fear him. The psalmist is saying. Now we come across the fear of the Lord in Psalm 128 verse 1. Do you remember that? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So the psalmist taught us in Psalm 128 that to fear God is to be devoted to God, to walk in His ways. The God-fearing person is a person who honors and reveres God to such a degree that it changes the way we think and the way we live before God. 
We know King Esther did not repent. Why? Not so much because of anything he said. In fact, the Bible doesn't record what he said. But it records his actions. He showed his unrepentant heart by his anger and him cancelling NNI, throwing him in prison. True repentance, on the other hand, receives forgiveness from God. That results in a growing love for God. And that growing love decide, results in breaking free from sin. The break from sin, don't get me wrong, the break from sin is not repentance. It is a fruit of true repentance. And it is a fruit of true repentance that's brought about by the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So I am not saying that if you truly repent from sin, that means you never fall into sin again. No, of course not. But it does mean two things if you truly repent. First of all, there will be an increasing hatred of that particular sin in your life. If you have truly gone through that being troubled by sin, if you have truly leaned on the mercy of God, you will hate the sin now. You have not truly broken from sin if you're still hugging your sin tight or rationalizing it or ignoring it. True repentance results in hatred of that particular sin. Secondly, true repentance, as time passes, because of our hatred of that particular sin, we sin less and less in that area, isn't it? We still stumble, but we should be, for true repentance from a particular sin, we should be seeing ourselves sinning less and less in that area. And the reason for that is because we are now working with God the Spirit in that area and not against Him. True repentance results in breaking from sin because our repentance stops us grieving the Holy Spirit and quenching His power. Look, if you are not truly repenting of sin in your life, you are just like stacking up sins and sins and sins. Of course, you, you're forgiven in Christ, right? But there is a sense in which your sins now are beginning to grieve the Holy Spirit, and they are quenching His power in your life. But when you truly repent of that sin, right? The, stop, the grieving of the Spirit in that area stops. His power now freely begins to flow through your life. And as we truly repent of sins every day, our fellowship with the Holy Spirit is deepened and, and it starts increasing our yearning for fellowship with God. And every day we start growing in delighting to spend more time with Him. We start delighting in prayer. A lot of Christians say, I lack my delight in prayer. The reason for that is sin, lack of true repentance. But when that is dealt with, oh, the love of His Word returns. True fellowship with other believers flourish again, doesn't it? We're worried. I mean, how do we get people to be, take God seriously? <laughs> As if we can. We can't, of course. Can't. We can't make anyone take God seriously. But we can remind them what true repentance is. Because the core issue is lack of true repentance. Are you backsliding at the moment? The reason is you have not truly repented. Are you struggling to pray? It's because you have not truly repented. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm simply saying there are sins in your life that you're not dealing with. Go back to the first point. True repentance is troubled by sin. True repentance leans on the mercy of God. And true repentance leads to a break from sin. And as we break from sin, 
we, 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 we enjoy life with God more. And there is this wonderful virtuous cycle that develops in the true repentant life, isn't it? Of more delight in God, resulting in more hatred of sin, resulting in more repentance, more repentance leading to a higher view of God, as it were, and more delighting in God again. You know, in 2016, Matt Dawson, the former rugby player, was beaten by a tick in a park in London, right? And it caused a bacterial infection to spread throughout his body. Just a tick, right? When he was taken to hospital, he was diagnosed with Lyme disease. And he remembers that moment. He says, you know, it was really a scary time for me and my family. And he said, such a tiny creature caused me to end up needing heart surgery. As I thought about Matt Dawson's life, I, it made me think, it's really sobering, isn't it, that something so small can cost us everything. And of course, we could look at COVID, something so tiny and it's wiped out trillions from the world economy. Over 7 million lives now by the Economist's magazine estimate have been lost globally now. Something small like that. COVID, tick. Tick is a helpful picture, isn't it? Or COVID, of the danger that sin poses to all people of God, isn't it? Something small, like we may regard our sin, could ruin our relationship with God. You see, the, del- the delusion of sin is that we can control it. But unrepentant sin is a dangerous pet that grows into a monster that attacks our work with God, like asking excellent in his life. King Esau, one of the most godly kings in Judah, one of the good guys of the Bible. He, said he was a good king. He failed to learn this truth, though, for himself. And his life now stands not only for the reforms he did, but it stands for this, the danger of unrepentance. In Psalm 130 this morning, we have learned that from the psalmist to avoid becoming like King Esau. He has encouraged us to enjoy true ongoing repentance of sin. And we've learned those three truths, haven't we? True repentance is troubled by sin. True repentance leans on the mercy of God. And true repentance leads us to break from sin. Well, may God, by his great mercy, in Christ, helps us to grow in practicing this true repentance. May he help us to live joyful and repentant lives for him in Christ. Amen.